All right, uh, we're gonna go ahead and pull it back in. So this is gonna end up really just being a two-part uh, series because uh, next week, the home fellowship leaders will be on retreat um, and we will all be gathering together at King's Church with LCF. And I believe that Billy is coming back from the retreat to preach uh, next week. Um, I'll send out, I'll try to send out an email reminder. If I don't send out an email reminder, remind me to send out an email reminder. Somebody. <laughs> Uh, but we'll uh, we'll be gathering together with LCF on uh, Saturday night at their at their house. Um, so this is going to end up being a, a, a two part series. Uh, I had hoped to maybe do three, but then I didn't I didn't map out the uh, the open weeks very well. Um, after that, we're going to be getting into the minor prophets, and we'll start with Hosea. So uh, feel free to to begin reading Hosea. That's actually the longest one, I think. Maybe Zechariah is as long. Zechariah is the longest minor prophet. Yeah, he's the most major minor prophet. Um, Hosea is is uh, is on the lengthy side as well. The rest of them, that is, some of them, are really short. Um, so, I'm looking forward to that time. But tonight we're going to talk about uh, another old basic for the new year. Last week we talked about the Word and our relationship with God through his written word, the Bible, and how significant that is and how important it is in our lives. Um, Tonight we're going to talk about prayer, but I feel like that's a bad word to describe what I'm going to talk about um, because it's kind of more, but also doesn't include everything that prayer includes. Um, So what I'm really talking about tonight to put it shortly, would be prayer. But it's actually the the time spent with God, the kind of time that we spend with God that cultivates and deepens our intimacy with him and prepares us to do the work that he calls us to do. So if you want to call that prayer as a, by shorthand, that's fine. But it's, the, it's specific set-aside time that we spend with God where we're just focused on our relationship with him deepening our intimacy with him and being prepared and equipped to go out and do the work that he calls us to do. So just like last week where we talked about the Bible as a place that God has set aside to meet us, right? To come and see, he invites us to come and see us, see him there. And we can always at any time go to the word and we know he's going to be there. And we know we're going we're gonna to learn when we go there. It's a set-apart place. You could say that this is God's set-apart time for us. So that's kind of a neat way to, to, to divide up the two-part series that we're talking about. The holy place that God has set aside to meet us and the holy time that God has set aside and provided us with to commune with him. The written word would be the place. It's always there. We know where it is. We can go there anytime we want. Uh, and the, the, the time is what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so this actual, this kind of time shows up in the very first chapters of Genesis. So that's where we're going to start tonight. Uh, Genesis chapter 
2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. This is right after day 6. All the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. God blessed it and he made it holy. Meaning he filled it, he filled it with, with life, he filled it with um, goodness. He filled it with flourishing, and he set it aside. It's a different kind of day. It's a different kind of time. So right there we see the principle of Sabbath. It's what it becomes known as throughout the rest of Scripture. The Sabbath is the once-a-week holy time. It gets written into the law. It's one of the commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. God made it holy. You all keep it holy. He set it aside. You set it aside as well. Because he has. And so remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So that's, that's the first principle of this kind of time that we spend with God, where he's invited us to come and seek him, is the principle of Sabbath. And there, but there's another one, and it's a little more subtle. It's in chapter 3. Verse 8, right after uh, Eve eats the fruit and they realize that they're naked and they, they clothe themselves with fig leaves. And it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God, this is verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Um, it says... If you have a footnote, if you have the ESV, it footnotes and it says, in the wind of the day. This is really interesting because it's the same word that is often translated spirit. Uh, in, in, ch- in chapter 1, verse 2, when the spirit of God was hovering over the water, it's ruach. It's, a, it's, it's an important Hebrew word. Uh, and here it says that God was walking in the garden in the ruach of the day. In the spirit of the day, in the wind of the day. It gets translated the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So some, there was this, it it seems like, because God says, God brings, he says, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And it seemed to be implicit in this is this daily time that God would come and in his presence, that he would speak with the man. It's probably during the cool of the day when God would bring the animals to Adam and he would, they would name them together, right? They would do the work of taking dominion together and speak about, hey, what are we going to do today? What's the, well, the southwest corner of the garden needs this, and all right, let's do this, and let's make plans, and then let's go out and do our work, all right? So there's these two principles of, Time that God wants to spend with his people. One is a weekly extended set aside time where we stop work. Another one is where we where God comes down and as we're heading into our work, he meets us in the cool of the day, in the wind of the day. And, and 
grants his presence to us and, and, and communes with us then. So it said, the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? There's this expectation that we're going to commune here in the cool of the day. And we're going to go about the day's work together in communion with each other, in fellowship with each other. And that's the real tragedy of the fall is that they said, well, I was afraid of your presence, so I hid myself. All right, And that fellowship, that daily fellowship, that daily communion was broken. And that's really the most tragic part of the fall. And everything, all the curses that follow after that are simply a, a working out of this broken communion. Right? Because then the work that Eve was given to do becomes toilsome, right? To, to partner with Adam in bearing fruit and multiplying. The work that Adam was given to do to cultivate the ground, to till the ground, to work it, is going to be toilsome and hard. Why is it? Because it's inherently harder? I'm not so sure. I think it's because God's not there in the cool of the day to, to meet us in the work, to meet them in the work, and to to go about, to help man fulfill his calling, right? That was really what life was about. In conjunction with God and deep fellowship and intimacy with God to steward this place that he has placed us and to do our work, to fill our calling. And so these two times that God had to fellowship with man in the Sabbath and in the cool of the day uh, were broken, and that is... Really, what the, what the fall, the tragedy of the fall and the rebellion. So this principle of Sabbath gets written into the law. And um, it becomes a, a, a place of, of difficulty for the people of God. God set it aside and he commands them to do it, to walk in it. Um, if you go to Isaiah 58... There's two things that happen around Sabbath, uh, ways that Sabbath gets uh, kind of misused. Uh, the first is that it gets ignored. Um, throughout Israel's history, God commands the Sabbath, but they have a, they have a history of ignoring it or, or uh, break, beginning to break it or, or to go about their own ways on the Sabbath. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13 this is God calling his people to repentance. Section where he's calling them to repentance. He says, return to me. This is, if, if you will return to me, we can actually restore the way that life was supposed to be. And part of the restoration includes a restoration of the Sabbath. And here's what God says to his people. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, And the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Right. Apparently there was a on the Sabbath that had become some some sort of an empty ritual and people wouldn't take the Sabbath and use it to seek the face of God and to, to commune with him. But they would use it for their own ends. Right. I mean, I think that this is written into our culture Right now, I mean, we, we live, people who live for the weekend, finally I can go do my own thing, right? Uh, the National Football League has pretty much taken over the day. You know, talk, speaking, talking idly, you know, the, the, the guys on the TV, they get dressed up in their best suits and they just 
talk about football more than you could ever imagine football could be talked about. <laughs> how many, I mean, how much can you talk about football? And they're, they're dressed up in the nicest suits you've ever seen to do it. Let's go in and get to talk about football. Every time I think I read this, talking idly, I think of all the idle talk that happens on Sundays. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. But he says, if you, if you can turn yourself away from that, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. In other words, we're gonna, we'll live on this globe that God placed us on, but we won't just be eking out an existence. We're going to ride on the heights of the earth. I mean, that's what God inte- always intended for man to do. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there's a number of places in the Old Testament we could go to, to, to look at where uh, when the people of God really turned back to God, they, they restored the Sabbath. That's one of the things that gets restored. And, and when you begin to honor the Sabbath, uh, good things begin to happen because God has, it is hardwired into creation to have this regular seven-day period where people, they cease from their work and they just focus on God. You, you look at this uh, portion and, and you, you hear uh, described all the, the types of thorns right, that choke out the word. To your own pleasure, your own cares, right? Um, talking idly. But then he says, if you obey, if you, if you obey this word, this command of the Sabbath, and the, the sequence here is important. If you obey it, then you'll delight in the Lord. Right? Obedience leads to delight. A lot of times we don't obey because uh, something else is, is, has captured our delight, captured our joy, captured our pleasure. And those are the things that we do in our downtime. But he says, I'm telling you, if you obey this principle of Sabbath, you will actually, your tastes, your delights will be redirected and reshaped. And you'll delight in the Lord. I'm telling you, you're enjoying inferior things on the Sabbath. Trust me. Trust me. So the Sabbath throughout the course of Israel's history becomes ignored. And that's an expression really of rebellion, of not trusting and obeying and submitting to the law of God. Um, But the other thing that we see, and this really comes to uh, the forefront in the New Testament when we see the Pharisees, their whole attitude towards Sabbath, Sabbath is no longer ignored. In fact, it's, it's, it's hyper-focused, right? Uh, it is um, not ignored, but it's abused. The Sabbath becomes abused, and it, and it becomes not, not an expression of rebellion, but an expression of, of legalism, right? Um, look at a couple of scriptures here. Uh, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, 
He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, and this is the, the key verse here, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath becomes abused when it becomes legalism and it becomes something that people use to to place themselves over other people. Well, you're not, you know, they use it as, a, as an accusing, uh, grounds for accusation in uh, someone else's life. And, and so Jesus is like, well, no, that's not the, you know, you're not supposed to ignore it. Don't ignore it. Actually keep it. But um, you've gone way overboard here. You know, it's become something that you serve more than you actually serve God. You haven't heard God's heart in the Sabbath. <laughs> you've just turned this into a weapon uh, to use on other people. Uh, John chapter 7. Jesus again is like wading through the misplaced priorities of the Pharisees. And he says, uh, John chapter 7, verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So he had healed someone on the Sabbath, and they got upset. And he goes, how backward is that? Someone goes from deformity to wholeness on the Sabbath, and you're angry about it because it involves some sort of work, <laughs> the way that you've defined work. What in the world is going on? And he says, but, but you yourselves, you have ways that you break the Sabbath. There are things that you can do on the Sabbath that you've allowed yourself to do. And he's like, you've excused yourself in that way. You've, you've found loopholes in those things. This isn't even loophole. This is like God's will coming. This is the kingdom of God. This is the life of God flowing into the earth on the Sabbath. And you want to shut it out. Well, that was what the Sabbath was for anyway. So that the life of God could continue to flow into the earth and, and cause things to flourish and cause healing and, and, and things like that. So the Sabbath became abused. So God blessed the Sabbath. He made it holy. He commanded it. Um, and he also expressed a desire to, in the daily walk, as man went about his work, to be with man, to walk with him, to speak with him in the cool of the day. Um, but this lesson was not ultimately uh, grasped. Uh, it was A few people got it. Right? But, but on the whole, mankind really didn't understand. We, we didn't understand how to walk with God. And so Jesus came, and, and among lots of other things, I think one of the more significant things is he, that he did was show us how to relate to God, show us how to, to um, commune with him and to, to live out life in fellowship with God as a man, as a, as a human being. All right? This is what we didn't understand. God's there. We're here. How are we going to bridge the gap? That separation was introduced into that relationship with God by the, by the rebellion in the garden. And we've been trying to deal with it ever since. Jesus said, all right, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. Watch me. And I will live a fully human life in a fully godly way. 
And one of the things that we see is that Jesus did not either ignore nor did he abuse the Sabbath. It was actually a really important concept for him. Prayer was crucial to the ministry of Jesus. Um, And he was very disciplined, but it wasn't out of a, a sense of legalism. And he was always irking the Pharisees with, the way, with, with his attitude towards Sabbath. But he was actually fulfilling the heart behind Sabbath way more than they had ever dreamed of fulfilling. So he was disciplined, but he was really, in his discipline, he was demonstrating how dependent he was on the Father. He says, listen, as long as you're a human being, hardwired into your humanity is a deep and total dependence on fellowship with God. And if you detach yourself from fellowship with God, everything begins to go wrong. Everything be- But we have an opportunity to, in our dependence, to approach God. And when Jesus uh, begins the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their limitations, who understand how dependent they are on the Father because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, a couple of scriptures that highlight Jesus' prayer life. Mark 1.35, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 5.16, But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. So he begins to go about the work of his ministry. But almost at every turn as he's working, he's retreating into prayer. And then he's coming out and doing his work. Listen to this. In these days, Luke 6 verse 12. In these days he went out to a mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. There was an all-night prayer session that Jesus had with the Father, and he came down the mountain with 12 names. That's a pretty amazing thing. But he was doing the work that the Father had sent him to do. He was healing. He was preaching. He was proclaiming. He said, I'm about my Father's business. But he was constantly, he would evade all the crowds and get out of the work and go and pray. And then he would go into the work. Right? And so Jesus' life really understood the dependence that we have on God, especially if we desire to do his will, to, to accomplish his work. And that's why he said, when he healed on the Sabbath, he said, my father is working until now and, and I am working. The point of the Sabbath is for me to be filled with the presence of God and then to go out from there to do his work. And he said, listen, I don't care what day of the week it is. I'm walking with God and I'm doing his work. Don't talk to to me about Sabbath until you've gone out all night on a mountain to pray and then appointed 12 apostles. You know, Jesus was not lacking in the intimacy and the communion with God that the Sabbath and the daily walk was supposed to accomplish. He made sure, and he was very disciplined about having set aside time to commune with God. That was why he could 
heal on the Sabbath. Because he understood that and he, he had fulfilled and he had prioritized his fellowship with the Father so much that it superseded even the law itself. It fulfilled the law. It went beyond it. Right? It wasn't just an adherence to a code. It went, it went above and beyond. Right? As he said, your righteousness must exceed, must exceed that of the Pharisees. Your devotional time must exceed that of the legalistic Pharisees that, they, that they want to tell you how to do it. So Jesus did not ignore the Sabbath or the cool of the day. He got up before it was dark, while it was still dark, you know, and he went out to pray. He met with God. God came down and his presence was with Jesus. And I'm sure they talked about what was coming up for the day. All right, we got this demon possession over here. We've got this woman with a, with a crippling illness here. You're going to have to really talk to Philip about that thing that he's doing with Andrew, right? You could, I, know, I know it's getting old, but you've got to stick with him. Right? And they, they, they talked about these things. But he also didn't abuse the Sabbath, and he didn't let the legalistic interpretations of God's intention behind the Sabbath get in the way of the more pressing matters in fulfilling God's call on his life. Right? So he didn't ignore it and he didn't abuse it. Two mistakes that Israel had found themselves in throughout their history. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. All right, so that brings us to what, what I really want to focus on. And I want to give five principles for prayer taken from Jesus' two primary teachings on prayer. Now, he taught about prayer a lot and demonstrated intimacy with God a lot. But there are two places, uh, one in uh, Matthew and one in Luke, where he actually gives them the Lord's Prayer. But I want to look at what, what surrounds those teachings, because he says, no, pray like this. But then he gives some guidance, both before and after he actually quotes the Lord's Prayer. And I want to look at that. And so I want to look at five principles that we can... Um, that we can take with us, I think, as we examine ourselves and, and the way that we spend time with God, commune with God, whatever you want to call it, setting aside time that is holy. I love that hymn that we sang, take time to be holy. We need holy time because God has made holy time for us. The Sabbath was made for man. All right, so Matthew chapter 6. This is uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Which in many ways is a sermon of how to really be a human. How to really walk with God. Uh, But verse 5, he says this. When you pray, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. 
And this is the first big principle. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That is a beautiful verse. It's calling us, Jesus says, to intimacy. Right? A shut door, exclusive company, is an intimate setting. A closed door means nobody else in here. It's just us. Jesus says, make it a matter of intimacy. This is not a matter of spiritual pride. This isn't a, this isn't a badge that you wear. You have a father who wants to commune with you, who wants to fellowship with you. And he's not out there in front of everyone. He's in the room that you need to go find him. He's in the secret place. There's a secret place. So Jesus says, and you know he's speaking from experience. He knows the secret place. He's been there many, many times. Right? When he's departed and withdrawn himself to go pray. He has a secret place. So he says, you've got to have a secret place. And then he says, so intimacy, not, um, not shallow association. Right? It's, not, it's not something, it's not a public matter. Right? We don't, we don't pretend to be a prayer. No. It's not like a, uh, you know, if this, we, we talk about a relationship between a husband and a wife. Right? You're not just out there and just, you don't just have like this trophy wife. Hey, look who I'm, look who I'm associated with. Right? That kind of relationship is pretty shallow. This isn't to be flaunted. No, you, you go and you cultivate a deep relationship in a place where it's just you two. Or else you can't really get to the place where you need to get. Right? You can't have a merely public affiliation. All right, so intimacy is the first principle. There's a proverb that says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. There's a, there's a, there's a secrecy in our own hearts that, that really we can only share with the Father. You can't even really get there with another human being. Now, we can in type and in shadow, right? Intimate relationship within the body, the intimacy of a husband and a wife, parents and children. There is an intimacy there. But ultimately, nobody can know you in the way that the Father knows you. And in fact, none of those other intimate relationships can actually be what they're intended to be unless you don't have the intimacy with the Father. Right? The secret place. He says, shut the door. I mentioned that old, really old door last week. Got to shut that door. <laughs> this is an old door. All the saints have gone in behind this door. All the true men and women of God have a big old door that they put between everything else and their time with God. The second principle that we see here, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
I don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but apparently the, the Gentiles, that prayer was kind of just this showy thing. And the, the more frenetic you got, the more pray you got, the, maybe the, the better chances that the gods would hear us. You know, I think of the prophets of Baal, who begin to they begin increasingly, like, uh, desperate. They're cutting themselves and calling out, Baal, Baal. And Elijah just kind of calmly and coolly is like, Lord, show him who's boss. <laughs> and he's not, he's not going crazy. He's not getting ecstatic and emotional. He just says, so the, the second principle here is simplicity. Intimacy and simplicity. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Heaping up phrases and having many words and being overly dramatic about it does not increase your chances for God to hear you. And he's, because he says, don't be like them. Because guess what? He already knows what you need. <laughs> he already sees you. You're not trying to get his attention. You already have his attention. Right? You already have his attention. I think sometimes we, we approach it like, God, if you're listening, you know, anybody out there? Like, just, just pray. Pray as if he's right there, because he is. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then he says, so pray like this. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, you couldn't get a more Edenic prayer. Help me fulfill the, the, the task of stewarding the earth in a way that reflects how it, how it is in heaven. I pray that heaven and earth would be one, right? It, it, isn't that probably what the kind of thing that Adam would have prayed and the father would have answered? How are we going to set this up? Well, Adam, let me tell you about this. Let me, let me, let me show you this uh, wisdom. Let me, let me bring you into this piece of wisdom. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day we, we're dependent. We are regularly dependent on God. And so we voice that dependency to him. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Intimacy and simplicity. You can look ahead into uh, verse 25. He says, so I'm telling you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. When you walk with God in this way, takes care of all that. Verse 32, he says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles, they get all anxious and they go voice their many words. Oh, how are we going to do this? Oh, help us, help us. Oh, I can't pay all the bills. I don't want what clothes I'm going to wear. Uh. And he says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God. There's a simplicity. There's a, there's a one pursuit. 
that he calls us to in prayer. We're intimate, we seclude ourselves with God, and we seek one thing. Just one thing. We just, we need, we need him. And everything else flows from that. On into chapter 7, verse 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. It says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Just come and ask. Don't get crazy about it. Don't get anxious about it. Come and ask. In Philippians, he says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything... By prayer and supplication, present your request to God. Bring it to God. Bring it to God. Bring it to God. It's like that old song. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You know? What's going on? Take it to the Lord in prayer. That song just keeps repeating that. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. All right, Luke chapter 11 is the other place where we where we see him uh, actually deliver the Lord's Prayer. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, I like this, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. (laughs) Maybe they were like, man. At this point, I mean, several times it says that he has gone out to pray, or he's prayed, and this has happened. and, And they're like, you know, I think there's something to this prayer thing. That's important for Jesus. We should ask him how to do that. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. This one's even more to the point than Matthew's. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Boom. (laughs) It's simple. It's to the point. But then he follows it up with this parable. He says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So this is is the third principle and it's dependency. Intimacy, simplicity, dependency. I have nothing to set before him. And this... Apparently, this this friend had a simple understanding that my friend has what I need. (laughs) Take it to my friend at midnight. He will answer from within. Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seeking you will find. He echoes that from Matthew. And then he, again, he follows it up with the, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Um, so dependency is when we find ourselves at a loss for how to meet a need uh, that we are asked to meet. So, you know, this... In the Sermon on the Mount, God really, uh, Jesus really focuses on how God cares for your needs. He knows what you need, and he will provide that. And here, there's an extra um, emphasis added because Jesus has been in the middle of sending out his 
followers to go do the work, right? To go preach the gospel. And they're coming back and they say, hey, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus is adding, hey, listen, God's going to take care of your needs, but he's also going to take care of the needs that come into your life from somebody else's life and that you don't have the capacity to meet those needs. Right? This is because the disciples are at a point in their walk with Jesus where he's counting on them for some things. And they're getting out there in the field and going, oh, I don't know if we have what these people need. And so Jesus says, you're right. This is a great opportunity for a lesson in prayer. Right? This is leadership 101. This is discipleship 101. You don't have what the lost needs. You don't have what a new believer needs. Other than 100% dependence on God. Right? That's all discipleship is. Depending on God and helping someone else depend on God. <laughs> That's really what it is. You don't have anything to offer. None of us has anything to offer anyone other than our experience of coming up short and God meeting our needs anyway. We don't have what we need. We don't have anything to set before anyone that comes into our lives and says, we have needs. We're lost. Can you show us the way? And we need to run as fast as we can in prayer to the Father and say, Father, fill me with what this person needs. I don't have it. So there's a a dual dependency. It's for ourselves, yes. But as we begin to get out into the work, and we're given responsibility in the kingdom. It's an even deeper dependency. Because now people are depending on us. And we have to bring that dependency before God as well. Does that make sense? All right, so dependency, but also, also persistence. And that's the fourth thing. Persistence. And persistence isn't like God is unwilling and so you really have to shake him out of bed. That's not what the parable is getting at. Persistence, we persist in prayer because we know that our dependence isn't going anywhere. <laughs> right? Well, is it persistence because he's the only one that has the bread that I need to offer my friend. And I can't go anywhere else. You know, Walgreens is closed. And, but, so it's got to be here. It's got to be here. That's the persistence that we bring to God. And if there's not like an immediate, uh, if there's not an immediate way that we see or this way that's opened up out of our prayer, we don't freak out and try and go somewhere else. We, we persist. No, this, this is where I get what I need. And it can't be anywhere else. Okay, so it's not a persistence because God's really looking for you to, uh, you know, he's making it hard for you. No, it's, it's a persistence because we're impatient and we're liable to go elsewhere for help when we don't get an immediate response. Does that make sense? Dependency persists. And, and that's when we're locked in to receiving from God. We can't go anywhere else. Um, in Isaiah, he says, Woe to those who go to Egypt for help. 
There was this constant pressure on the kingdom of Israel from outside threats. And God saying, come to me. I'm more than willing to fight for you. I'm more than willing to give you what you need. And they keep going to Assyria. They keep going to Egypt. The pressure causes them to go elsewhere. God says, if you would just limit yourself to me, you have no idea the kind of power that that would unlock. And that's the kind of persistence that God is looking for in prayer. Limiting ourselves, staying on that doorstep, because there is nowhere else to go. But all of this is rooted in the, in the fifth principle, and that is trust. Trust. Why do we persist? When we are dependent on God, why do we persist and not go somewhere else? Because we trust in who he is. In, all of, in both of these uh, instances where Jesus is teaching on prayer, he says he's driving home the goodness of the Father. The love of the Father for his children. And that's what our trust is in. Our trust is not in everything will work out the way that we think it should work out. Our trust is in the fact that the Father loves his children and gives good things to his children. That's why we don't go somewhere else. Because nobody else cares for his children in that way. Nobody else loves the way that the Father loves and so Jesus says, you guys got to understand. We pray this not, not because it's a law, not because it's a magical incantation, but we pray this because the Father is there and the Father is good. And if you will sell out to this kind of relationship with the Father, you're going to be the kind of human that he created to live in the earth and to steward the earth. You're going to find true humanity. In this, you're going to be brought back to that first week of creation where the father rested and he had created man. And there they were just together, just fellowshipping. And then once the week turned over into week two, coming down in the cool of the day and speaking wisdom, giving, uh, meeting needs, giving strength, giving guidance throughout the day. Uh, by his presence, by his Holy Spirit, the, his breath that leads us. And here's the thing, that God answers prayers with his presence. <clears throat> and that is disappointing to someone who hasn't decided in their heart that the presence of God is the very best thing. God answers prayers with his presence. In Luke it says that, he says, Matthew says the Father gives good things to those who ask. Luke says the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. When we enter into prayer, see, Jesus that's, that was the secret of Jesus' life. When he would go and pray, he would receive the Holy Spirit. And that's how he could go and accomplish the works that the Father had uh, commissioned him to do. He didn't receive some kind of special... He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. 
So I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. There was a, there was a secret hidden relationship with God that sustained Jesus and equipped him for every good work. And it didn't look like, I mean, he didn't come out with guns blazing. He didn't come out just looking ready to, ready to go. He came out in, in weakness and dependency and all the frailty of humanity, but he was in the presence of God. And he did what he did because he was dependent and because he persisted and because, he's, because he trusted in the goodness of the Father. So everything that Jesus taught about prayer has to do with intimacy with the Father, living life out of that place of intimacy. Amen? All right, so we have... Um, we've talked about the, the place that God sanctified, the Holy Bible, the Holy Book. And we've talked about the Holy Time that God uh, wants to spend with us. And those two teachings, and I want you to hear this, those two teachings are the only teachings that any of us need for this whole year. Like, if we can give ourselves to respond fully and to embrace the truth that God has delivered to us last week and this week, that's all you need to grow and live a radical life in the kingdom of God. Being with God, being in his spirit, that's all you need. Now, we're going to go on. And we're going to learn... Uh, more about scripture and about how the way that he deals with his people and the minor prophets. And then we're going to get into Paul's letters, which are just my favorite uh, parts of scripture. Um, but I do just want to challenge you. It, can you stay where, where we've been for these two weeks? Because they will lay the base for everything else that God wants to do in your life. He really can't do it outside of your desire to be with him. You know, that's the only limiting factor is if we don't take him up on his generous offer of a place and a time, right? You send out a, you send out an, a, a meeting invite. JP's people all send out the meeting invites. It's got a place and a time. All right, what is it? Appointment with so-and-so. It's got a place. It's got a time. We've, we know the place, and we know the time. Are you going to take God? Are you going to show up to the appointment? Or are you going to flake out? That's the challenge. And uh, the rest of the year, are you going to show up to the appointment? Are you going to take God up on his extension of himself, his invitation to you to come and be his son, be his daughter, have deep intimacy and, and fellowship with him. And from that place, then be able to live the life that he wants you to live. Amen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And uh, we're going to come up to the table and devote ourselves to, to one of those things tonight and break bread together.